0: Hello, welcome to a new episode of For the Love of Weather podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss all things weather and how they impact our daily lives. We hope that you leave this episode and every episode that you listen to loving the weather just that little bit more. Hi, I'm meteorologist
1: Gemma. Hello, I'm meteorologist and weather presenter Ashling, And today we have Dr. Emily Fairfax. I mean, the fact you're a doctor, I know for a fact you've studied about six years, which means that you've probably got a lot more experience than that as well. Absolutely incredible. But Emily is assistant professor of environmental science and resource management at California State University Channel Channel Islands. She's also an ecohydrologist. Like I'm already I'm already in love. I'm already in love. And a fountain of knowledge on all things beavers, which are actually just so incredibly important in the environment. In a couple of episodes previous, we learned a lot about beavers, and that's why we have you on, Emily, because we had no idea that they were so important in actually the future of our climate. So without further ado, before we even get to that, we need to just go right back to the beginning, Emily, and just when was your first little love of right? Okay, I'm probably going to become an expert in beavers.
2: Oh, that's a great question. And it's more recent than a lot of people think it would have been. So I always liked wetlands growing up. I thought they're very cool. I was fascinated by them, didn't think much about beavers at all, um, including up through high school into college. I saw a bunch of beaver dams one summer when I was leading canoe trips in the boundary waters uh, on the Canadian American border. And I was like, wow, these are both cool and annoying to drive my canoe over. And that was kind of where that one ended. Um, And then I was working as an engineer myself, and not really feeling like that was the job for me. So sitting on the couch, all mopey, watching documentaries, and one about beavers came on called Leave It to Beavers. And it was just like fireworks going off in my head. Suddenly, I was seeing all of these aerial views of beaver ponds, and these scientists were talking about how there's so much we don't understand about beavers, which I was like, what? Aren't they solved? They've been here for a while. Um, They're not solved, apparently. And I just couldn't stop thinking about them. And I was motivated enough by that documentary to quit my job and go to graduate school to study beavers. And I'm still doing it. So I'm glad I watched the TV that one day because it was truly life changing.
1: This is my point to people in life. You never know what conversation is going to change your life. You literally don't know. But you said you were an engineer. What Mm -hmm. are you an engineer of? So clearly I see the relation now with beavers and engineer because they are the most amazing engineers, but an engineer
2: of what? Uh, I was an engineer on weapons systems, so nothing wow. like what beavers do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> big shift. <laughs> <laughs> but
1: I guess an engineer none the same. So you're still studying like hydraulics, um, thermodynamics, hydrodynamics. So there is actually that. There is actually that yeah. link there. And beavers are our engineers. I mean, they're they're natural engineers. That that's absolutely insane. So tell us, you had that documentary. And you thought right I'm gonna go and change this so how have you now become assistant professor <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> like I think of I think of the word professor and I think of somebody who's uh much older than you are may I add and I know people are listening to this but you look so
2: young how are you already <laughs> an assistant professor <laughs> all of the joy of my job keeps me young um no so I uh I went, I was very motivated after seeing that documentary and I was like, I'm going to grad school. I'm going to do my PhD and it's going to be in Beavers. And I was fortunate that my undergrad degrees were in chemistry and physics. So I had a very strong science foundation going into it. Um, And so I start my program in geological sciences and I was just like, this is amazing. I want to use satellites to study this, which meant all my data was already there. I just had to analyze it. Uh, And I wound up finishing my PhD in four years. So I did that pretty quickly. And then applied for professor jobs right out of my PhD, got one um, the first year I applied and have just been like steam blasting down this beaver path ever since. Initially, like what? That is just so, so
0: impressive.
1: Like so impressive. So impre- I'm so glad I never went on to do a doctorate. I'd <laughs> just been still trying to finish it all these <laughs> all these years, all these years later. What was the name of your doctorate? What was the title of your thesis?
2: Uh, oh my gosh, what was the title? Um, it was Building Climate Resilience in a Warming World from Beavers to Undergraduate Education, because I actually had a chapter in there as well about how we can make field studies more accessible so that more people participate in science. So it's about you
1: beavers and people. are ahead of your time. That is, <laughs> that's absolutely incredible. So tell us how can beavers help with droughts and wildfires?
2: Oh man, what can't they do? Um, So it's like a running joke in the beaver science community, like you got a problem, there's a beaver for that. Uh, And droughts and fires are not an exception to that joke. Um, When beavers move into a landscape, they will go into streams that are in various states of health. Some of them are really degraded from human land use change, um, overgrazing, or edification. Some of them are better off, but regardless of what that stream looks like when they start, Beaver's first order of build business is to build the dam. And that dam starts to slow the water down and make it so that instead of just all rushing through right after every rainfall or right after all the snow melt, it just sits on the landscape a little bit longer. And that lets that pond water start to seep into the soil and recharge aquifers. So you're building up this water supply that when you have a period of drought, it's been stored and it's on site and it's underground where it's not necessarily just going to evaporate off right away Um, and leave the landscape parched. And that's what plant roots can access. And so they drink that up and the plants stay green and healthy. And if you have a wildfire come through the landscape, it's just hard to burn wet stuff. Like it was probably the most impactful um, result I found was that beaver ponds are really fire resistant, but at the same time, it also feels the most intuitive to me. Like if I was being asked hey I want to start a campfire can you go get a bunch of stuff to start the fire with like if I came back with this big pile of wet leaves and sticks I don't think I'd be invited camping again like it's not gonna burn it's so soggy it's goofy to try to start a fire with that and that's the same thing in beaver ponds it's just so wet that it doesn't burn
1: so why 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 do beavers do this Like, is this just their, how do they find somewhere? What is it? What's their, what's going on with them to even find the place in the first place to say, this is the spot here, everyone. This is the spot. This is what we're doing. Oh, come! (laughs) What's that like behavioral thing happening there? Because what I have actually very humbly learned is absolutely nothing to do with humans. They're just going about their business, aren't they?
2: Yeah. So beavers are super awkward when they're on the land. They are technically both an aquatic and a terrestrial mammal, but on the terrestrial side, they uh, aren't graceful. So this is a 40 to up to 100 pound rodent with webbed back feet, little grabby hands on the front, and this huge paddle tail. And its body is shaped like a bowling ball. So this is like when they're walking across the landscape, it's really a waddle. And that makes them very vulnerable to predators. They know that. like Evolution has taught them that over millions of years. Um, it's not safe to be on land. So beaver's number one priority is make more water habitat. And that's why they build these dams. As soon as they see a section of the river that they think they can get a dam to across and be stable, they're going to start building because they need to be in the water to be safe. They're very vulnerable. Otherwise, all of this incredible engineering and landscape change is driven by the fact that they're awkward when they're running around the landscape. Um, but it really is, huge and that is their motivation in so much of this they make these big ponds so they have big areas that they're safe in they dig these little canals out from their ponds further into the floodplain because they don't want to be caught walking around they'd rather swim home if there's a problem and so all of these complicated ways of changing the hydrology of a landscape really come down to the fact that the beaver is trying to avoid getting eaten by predators
1: so this basic survival skill of beavers why is it now or how is it that we can without impacting them get them to help
2: us um step one is leave them alone so they will do a lot on their own and people have a lot of people have this sort of compulsion to want to be involved in that and to really try to like boost them along and make them do better and for a lot of beavers the best thing we can do is leave them be if they've already found a spot that they think they can fix up into a nice wetland let them do it um They have a good intuition for what's going to be damnable and what's not. And us trying to override that isn't always successful. But sometimes we really do want them to build in certain places and they're not doing it. And so there's a few ways to attract them to that site. One is to kick off the river restoration process for them. And this is called low-tech process-based restoration. Sometimes what it means is we go in and build fake beaver dams. So we use sticks and stones and mud, pretend to be the beavers, build a fake beaver dam. And then when an actual beaver comes through that system and it sees that, it goes, wow, horrible dam. This must be an abandoned dam. No beaver would have this. So I'll fix it up and make it my own. And then they'll stop and they'll settle in that site. So you can kind of lure them into sites by giving them a bit of a starter home um, by having a little baby beaver dam that we built and a little bitty pond that we're starting to create. You also can physically reintroduce them to places where they've been absent for a long time. Uh, beavers have been over exploited a lot in their history. Um, everywhere that they're native to, they've been overexploited for their fur. And that has resulted in watersheds that used to have a lot of beavers having almost none today. And for beavers to reestablish in those environments, sometimes There's just not enough on site to do that luring back with restoration work. And so then you want to actually bring beavers back physically, drop them off at a site where maybe you have done some restoration work or that has a high chance that they're going to stick and survive and then let them do their thing there. It's easier if they find a site on their own and stay there where they find one of your BDAs and take it over. Um, But sometimes you do need to relocate them into a new system.
1: How big a dam do you know of? that you've like tricked them into taking over like what what has been a version of that as a successful project
2: i was just up at a restoration site in california called dodie ravine and a number of beaver dam analogs were built at this site over a span of a few years um some of them were really well done and they could have fooled you to think it was an actual beaver dam if you didn't look too close some of them were a little hairy scary uh The longest one that I saw was maybe 15 meters long. It wasn't super long and it's maybe a meter high. And it was just a bunch of posts that had more sticks laid on it to kind of mimic what a beaver dam would look like. Uh, Beavers had fully taken that one over by the time I was at the site, maybe five years later, and expanded it to be like, I think it was probably 300 meters long. It was a massive increase. So they really just used that BDA, the beaver dam analog, as a starting point, and then they ran with it. Um, And that was probably the most extreme case I've seen of beavers taking over a beaver dam analog. There's another one at that site where the beaver dam analog is still there. It's probably only uh, maybe five to 10 meter length one. Um, Beavers did not like where that one was placed. So they built a brand new dam about 10 feet, uh, which is like three meters downstream. And so they were just like, I don't like where you put it. But if you'd moved it up a little bit, it would have been fine. So I'm just going to build mine there. Uh, what, what, what did you learn from where you put them? What was like, what What do you
1: think they didn't or did like about that?
2: So the one that they chose not to take over is fascinating. Uh, from the shape of the river sort of channel, the spot where they built it makes the most sense. But It had a bedrock bottom like there was no soil there beneath it. It was really scoured. So that's hard to build on because it's slippery and there's you can't like jam sticks into it. And so when the BDAs were being constructed, they put them upstream because it was close to that like good nick point. But there was still soil there and the beavers, they, for whatever reason, decided that that was not acceptable. And they would rather build on the bedrock than build where there was soil, which was like strange. but their dam is in great shape. It's like a meter and a half tall. It's holding back a huge pond. They made it work. Uh, it goes to show you that we still think about what they're doing in our own human terms sometimes. So like we wouldn't want to build there. It's too hard. So we didn't. Um, it didn't make sense to us. But it still made sense to beavers. So we haven't fully captured their thought process, even when we're really trying to understand how they decide to change the landscape.
0: So they were willing to do the tough thing. Yeah. Yeah. How big can a beaver dam get? Like, what's the biggest ones that you've seen? Biggest ones I've personally
2: seen, the tallest is uh, just under three meters tall. That one's huge. That's Um, huge. Absolutely massive. Uh, And it's a very unique case of a beaver dam because it was on a creek that had been massively eroded. And so the creek was incised down about three meters Uh, And so they were just damming it back up to reconnect it to its floodplain. And its you see this dam, it's ridiculous. They're like hoofing logs over the top of it now to reinforce it. Cause like, what's a stick going to do? It can't even reach halfway down the dam. It's incredible. Um, And they've been maintaining that one for over a decade now. So it's working. Um, The longest one I've personally seen is probably around uh, 300 meters or so. And it started off like crossing a stream channel and then it just kept sort of going and the wetland was expanding. It was in a big valley bottom. So there's lots of room to expand and then it just starts curling around. And by the time this dam is finished it's almost made like a full circle because it just keeps going and trying to like catch more and more water in this huge pond. It's kind of ridiculous. I don't know how they maintain that one because it's so big, Um, but it's also not a super flashy system. So there's not like a lot of big floods that would come and damage it pretty often. So maybe they're just
0: bored and they keep building on it. It's huge. You mentioned satellite images at the beginning. So can you see the dams and the beaver wetlands from satellite images? I'm obsessed with satellite images. So if you can, I'm going to search for them now.
2: Yes, you can. Um, You can see them on Google Earth. You can see them uh, with Google Earth Pro. Any of those uh, historical images that are up there, you can just scroll back, see them all. The really big ones you can see with some of the coarser satellites like Sentinel-2. Um wow. a Landsat series is a little bit too coarse to really get an idea of them, but yeah, they're they're visible. What's a the resolution? What yeah, <laughs> I'm
1: trying to remember what the resolution is off Landsat.
2: Landsat's 30 by 30 meter pixels. Okay. Uh, Sentinel yeah. two, 10 by 10. And then yeah. a lot of the uh imagery that's accessible in Google Earth, that's max R, And that's like super, super fine resolution. You can it's see crazy individual what you sticks can see.
0: sometimes. Yeah. Oh, individual sticks.
2: Yeah, if you get like a really high-res Maxar image and it's like right over one of the big dams, you can actually see like the color gradient, like a, a lighter color blob that's a, like a new stick and then some older ones are next to it. You can see the, it's very cool. So, so I my mind blown. I'm like, I, know.
0: I to this right now.
2: <laughs> I know we're talking about beavers, but I'm thinking of
1: James Bond and spying. It
0: kind of feels that way a little bit. <laughs> We've touched a little bit about droughts and wildfires, but is there another way that... um like beavers can help with flooding and water resources sort of in generally Mm -hmm. yeah
2: so they really they wouldn't be able to help with droughts and fires if they couldn't also help with floods so the whole key of a beaver wetland and why it's so resilient uh, to climate disturbances is because it just like takes everything down a notch and it stores water and so when you have a big flood event coming in if that's a ton of snow melt if it's a big rainstorm it doesn't really matter When all of that water is confined to a narrow river channel, it has a lot of power and it can like rip away at the banks and it can really damage homes and roads and infrastructure. But when you have that same flood wave enter into a really broad wetland, it spreads out and that act of spreading out takes height off the wave and it takes power out of the wave and so when it spreads out the beaver pond itself is good at holding some water but then these canals they dig those effectively are piping water away from the main corridor out onto the floodplain where as its name suggests floodwaters do belong and once the water is out on the floodplain it's on a bunch of vegetation which is very rough and that lets that water slow down even further and sink into the soil so you actually have that flood wave being attenuated in the beaver wetlands and if you have one beaver wetland after another after another after another that's when you can start to see significant peak reduction in that flow coming through. Instead of having just this big, sharp, flashy wave come in, you have sort of a gentle rise in your hydrograph. It's pretty,
1: like, it's pretty incredible what you're describing there. So, so as the beavers are building these dams and they get bigger, they naturally build these channels. Is that right?
2: Mm -hmm. Yep. They'll dig out those little canals. They also build a lot of secondary dams. So beaver isn't just going to build one dam for its family. Most beaver families that I see in my research are maintaining anywhere from five to 10 dams. They have their big dam called the primary. That one has the big pond behind it that they live in. And then on either side, upstream and downstream, they'll have a series of smaller dams. And that helps control how the water's flowing to make sure they have plenty of water at their home pond. But they're also like an insurance policy against these disturbances. So if a flood comes in and it breaches one of those dams upstream or blows it out, that's okay. There's four more before the flood wave gets to the home pond. And then if the home pond starts to leak and you lose water from it, that's okay because there's a few more downstream to catch that water and to not let it all escape. So it's just like this incredible buffer system they've built up around themselves that during floods is really good at catching that water and during droughts is really good at holding that water on site.
0: They're the what? ultimate engineers. Like, I know. <laughs> crazy to think that they just know to do that. That's absolutely amazing. I mean, they've been
2: having to engineer the landscape for at least hundreds of thousands of years. Um, it's hard to figure out exactly when dam building evolved in beavers' lineages. Some people think it was seven million years ago, some people think it was 24 million years ago. No matter what you think. It's longer than we've been building dams uh, and they have had natural selection working on them. So the beavers that don't build these really well buffered landscapes lose their home and then they die because um, evolution is very tough on animals. And so what's left over after all of these generations of beavers is ones that can build just absolutely rock solid, stable, wetland ecosystems. Beavers their ecosystems
1: and climate. So our biggest problem is the amount of carbon the atmosphere and what you've just described to us is actually the prevention of fire which means not only are you releasing extra carbon you're keeping the store that you already have in the ground so what should our big plan be for beavers I know we're going to need a lot of ingredients in this next recipe that hopefully we'll all come up with Tell us what what would be the grand plan in your mind as to how we can help them to help us.
2: Yeah, it's so beavers are like rock stars when it comes to climate adaptation. So all of these problems we're having with climate change, they help us survive them and to thrive despite them by storing water, by helping with droughts, by helping with fires and floods they can help with greenhouse gases themselves. There is research out of the Rocky Mountains here in North America showing that beaver wetlands sink a lot more carbon in the soil around them than other types of rivers or then grasslands would, for example. Uh, and that beaver ponds themselves can be carbon sinks. They can also be carbon sources. So they, many wetlands put out methane. Um, Beaver ponds are not exempt from that, but you have to consider their whole carbon balance on site, the carbon dioxide coming down, the methane going up, uh, and on longer timescales. So they're complicated, like some of them are carbon sources, some of them are carbon sinks. If we want beavers to keep helping us and keep giving us time to deal with climate change, uh, we need to chill with the fossil fuels pretty quickly. Um, We have a lot more control over carbon in the atmosphere than beavers do. And we need to make space for beavers to do what they know how to do innately. People really like to control all of the efforts for climate change because it's more predictable that way. We can say we did X and we expect Y. And when you partner with nature or partner with beavers or any of these more natural processes, we don't have such concrete expectations. We can't. like We know that they can help with this. We know that they can do that. But we can't sit down and give the beaver like a set of engineering plans and say, okay, you're going to build right here. This dam is going to be 10 meters long, a meter and a half tall. You need to maintain it on site for seven years or we're not going to hit our goal. Like beaver doesn't care. Beaver's just trying to do what it's always done. And so giving beavers the space, giving them the time and trusting them to do what they would naturally do and that it is good for us, I think is going to be more useful than trying to really be hands-on
0: with the beavers. Nature-based solutions are such a thing that we need to be thinking more about I'm like rec- in recent years I have become fascinated by nature-based solutions and what nature can do to help us um mm. and yeah but as you say need to allow them to do what they're doing
1: you also tap into a really interesting point there that I've never quite thought about before and that we want x to equal y so we can count it And actually, that's really quite a massive point that you've just landed on there because the things that we can control are the amount of fossil fuels that we're just putting in. But at the same time, whilst we want nature to help us, yeah, it's an entirely unquantifiable thing to be able to control nature. So the one thing that we can control is ourselves.
2: Yeah, and just trust that nature is what it is for a reason like it, it's yeah. not beavers aren't building these dams because they've just decided to do that in the last 50 years they're doing it because they've always done that and the planet has sort of built itself in a way that accommodates beaver engineering just like it has built itself in a way that it does accommodate people um we just have to really think about how we fit into the ecosystem and then respect that we're just a part of it we're not the sort of puppet master of the ecosystem or we shouldn't be because it hasn't worked for us so far. Like, we're not on a good path. Um,
0: so no. really, taking that step back is very important. Yeah, we do, as you say, we need to trust nature. Nature will help us. Just trust it. Yeah, we should. Yeah. And, but, but see, maybe that's part of the problem. Because we don't trust <laughs> the people in charge. So <laughs> we try and
1: trust nature. It's kind of a bit political Sorry. I trust for... nature. I'll oh, trust nature. I trust
2: nature <laughs> more. I trust nature <laughs> I'll oh, Just give someone a picture of a beaver and be like, you trust this? <laughs> I mean, it sounds very strange you like yeah, yeah yeah totally but then yeah. people are like really this is a big rodent and you're like yes i hear you it is a big rodent and your engineers may have very impressive advanced degrees and a lot of experience but they're trained and they're skilled at different things
0: yeah. and
2: until uh like 250 years ago or so until colonization in north america beavers actually had a larger impact on the physical landscape than humans did so beavers can do a lot of landscape engineering if they're given the time and space to do so it's only when we come in and try to take control of it that we reduce their capacity to do that so what when you say they had a bigger
1: impact 250 years ago so that is within like documented human
2: lifetime Mm -hmm. can you expand on that a little bit yeah so before um the european fur trade and the demand for pelts from North America, there was anywhere from 100 to 400 million beavers on this continent. And that is a lot, that is like one beaver for every single kilometer of habitable stream. They were literally everywhere. And there were a lot of people living in North America already that lived very successfully alongside um, and with the beavers in that landscape. Then colonization occurred and the fur trade really uh, over exploited beavers to a pretty grotesque degree. And their population was down into the hundreds of thousands within the span of a couple of decades. So drove this animal to near extinction really fast. And today in North America, we're looking at having like 10 to 40 million beavers, which sounds like a lot, but that's 10% of their historical population. So we're still recovering from this massive loss of an ecosystem engineer and a keystone species. And it's one thing to lose a lot of a species, like that's always a problem, that's always a bad thing but losing a species that is responsible for physically changing the landscape in such a dramatic way and creating critical habitat for so many things. That's why it's a keystone species. It makes wetlands and so many things need wetlands. Like that scale of loss is hard to imagine. And we're still grappling with how to describe what some places used to look like when they had all these beavers. They were so radically different. You see places named like Beaver Dam Creek or something. Uh, in the American Southwest, and they are bone dry today. But they wouldn't have been named that if there'd never been beaver dams there. And so it's just these little glimpses into what it was like, and what it could be like again if we are a lot more sustainable in how we live with and work with nature.
1: And what what type of um, procedures are in place for that? Is there much protection for them now? Where, where you know, who's for want of a better word, responsible? for rebuilding that population
2: it varies really dramatically um state to state in the united states there's different policies in some places you uh have very strict regulations on if you can kill a beaver and when in some states it's a free-for-all if they set foot on your property you can kill them and you don't even have to tell anyone about it um it's it's really uh unregulated when you think about it like as a nation it's unregulated because it's so many different regulations from place to place it's pretty similar up in Canada I'm not exactly sure how Mexico is managing their beavers but generally speaking there is no cohesive plan Um, some places are really proactive and like California just established a beaver-based restoration and conservation program that's state funded it says like we're going to protect these things because they can help us with climate change so let's invest time money and people in that Um, Washington state is similar, but then there are places where beavers are routinely shot by the dozens during hunting season, because that's just the culture and it hasn't changed and there's nothing to stop people. So it's really hard to say if their population is recovering, shrinking, staying the same. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not being monitored at a large scale and it's not being regulated at a large scale.
1: And is that something your community is, you know, trying, trying to
2: change? We're trying We'd like to see a lot of changes. They're getting a national beaver policy would be a dream, but also a policy nightmare. And most of my working community is scientists that are scared of that. Um, myself included. Why? It's, it's pretty intense to start wading into that because then, at least in the U.S., it is hard to continue to just be a scientist and do your science when you are also advocating for policy because things have gotten so polarized that you just get lumped and then you lose the ability to connect with people like across the aisle. Um, so it's challenging. A lot of scientists I know mm-hmm. work with nonprofits who have people that are a little more policy literate, have better training on how to work with these different stakeholders and groups and people that make laws. Um, and then the scientists inform that. So we're working on a network with it. It's hard. Um, mm-hmm. We're really trying to help right now, just figure out how many beavers we have. Like yeah. 10 to 40 million is not a small window. That's a really big window. Uh, and it's honestly based on a number that was printed in the paper in the 1980s that was based on a number from the 1920s that was based yeah. on an estimate. So it's like really hand wavy. We'd like to know how many we have and we'd like to establish better methods for monitoring their populations so we can at least see, are they going up? Are they going down? Are they responding to conservation efforts or not? Um, there's so many really fundamental questions about their population that don't have answers right now. With the beaver world, it there's a lot more vocal people than mm. I think some other disciplines have. I mean, myself and several other scientists have testified to state legislatures before and just said like, this policy is garbage. Um, it's not based in fact. And that's where we found ourselves to be most valuable is to step into those spaces and right. say, this is not factual. Um, this shouldn't be in place. This should be undone, delete it, start from scratch. Um, And they have very mixed success. Uh, But what it does do is it puts a face to the sort of like Mm. unbiased um, data on it. And then like I routinely will interface with politicians and with policymakers and I will talk to them, um, but I will not be the person who puts forward the legislation because ultimately there are skills in that that I just don't have and don't have time (laughs) to learn. Um, And so I think the from my perspective like the real thing scientists need to do is to talk to the people that do this kind of work and that do policy and do advocacy and ask how can I help how can my data help how can my insight help because everybody has a skill to contribute and a lot of scientists honestly have potential to do a lot of harm if they don't know how to talk about their research and then get it all twisted in the media and cause confusion and like mistrust and that's also a, a careful line to walk cuz we are trained in a lot of things but speaking to the media and public speaking is not one of the standard parts of a scientist's curriculum.
1: No, and you know what, you're you're actually you're so right there. You're you're absolutely right. And and you know, um myself and Jem about work in the media. So we completely understand that you must have your quotable quote, you know, um because you can pick out any part of a paper and skew it. And we've seen that happen in the media. We've seen it. Mm-hmm. We've seen it happen in the media. So yes, you do make a fair point, but it is lovely and reassuring to know that actually you already, you are wading in just in a, in a, um in a different way. Much
0: like the beavers coming in the channels. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) And you raise a really good point as well about the science communication, which has become a massive thing in the last few years. And you can do all the research and all the studying that you want, but if you can't effectively communicate that with people, Mm -hmm. no matter who it is, it's pointless. You need to be able to communicate that. And it's vital to have that. Make that topic or that,
1: you know, yeah, just give somebody that take home message. And mm. they're like, ah, oh, I maybe I will never become an expert in this, but I know I need to care. Yeah. Or I know it's I need like, to listen.
2: It's like tricky though, because some of it's chicken and egg. Like you want to be good at it, but you get up good at it by practicing. But you don't want to yeah. be practicing too much if you're not good at it. And so finding <laughs> yeah, like, so true. <laughs> like you gotta find like safe groups to practice with so that you can start talking to like more and more high risk, high impact audiences. So the first time you go out and like talk about your cool study is not with like the heads of all the state agencies. It's probably with like a local library group and like practice and see what works and then you know scale up from there. I've definitely seen scientists feel very sad when their work gets totally misconstrued and then that doesn't help anybody. And I always wanna help them, but it's like, well, probably should have practiced some of this um, beforehand.
1: Yeah. no it's a 100 a, a valid point but definitely um a conversation that changes within the science community and yeah. uh yeah but you can know all the stuff in the world but actually being a good communicator about it is um, or, and also just to make it interesting to people mm. just to be like i yeah i just you don't need to know a lot but you just need to know why
2: you need to care and that's it I mean, everybody doesn't just innately love looking at spreadsheets like me? <laughs> what? You mean like me and Gemma
0: too? Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, look at that graph. Isn't that really interesting? <laughs> yeah. Guess not. <laughs> Before we go, though, we would like to ask you one more question, I think, mm-hmm. about beavers, because we've touched on how beavers can help us with climate change. But is there also ways in which the weather itself impacts beavers?
2: Yeah, I mean, beavers are kind of unique in that they make the environment suit them. So they already live in deserts, they live in mountains, they live in estuaries, they live in grasslands, forests, like they are not super constrained by their physical or ecological setting the way that many other animals are. So fluctuations in weather isn't as detrimental to them as it might be for more sensitive species. However, they are not like impervious to feeling these things. And when you have prolonged heat waves, when you have really extended dry periods, when you have increasingly intense thunderstorms, meaning more floods, that is all taxing on the beavers. Like they want to keep their ponds safe every time there's a flood and they do a lot of work to maintain those dams and patch up leaks. And if the old time period between big storms was maybe three a summer and now you're getting 30 a summer, like that's a lot more work for the beavers. And so beavers are going to respond to that by either working harder or maintaining smaller territories or moving on and we have seen beavers leave habitats that probably were good in the past and are becoming less good and as climate continues to change and weather is getting harsher in some of these climates Uh, we've also seen beavers start to move north uh, into the arctic and they haven't been up there for a while they used to be up there there are fossil beaver ponds from like all the way as far north as you can possibly go but it's from when the planet was a lot hotter and there wasn't any permafrost up there. Uh, There is permafrost there today and beavers as that permafrost is melting, they're following it north into these new habitats as shrubs start to grow. It's called shrubification of the Arctic. And beavers grow up because they're like, hey, new habitat looks great. And then they engineer it and that accelerates some of those changes. And then people are like, whoa, beavers are really changing the Arctic fast, which is true. But the Arctic is also changing fast because of us. And it's creating all this conflict And so beavers are being affected in that way. Places that were less habitable are becoming more habitable. Beavers move into it. We feel nervous about that. Uh, And it's all just, it's kind of the same thing that people are doing, like trying to live places that are going to be better as the planet gets hotter and moving if they have the means to do so, to leave places that are facing incredible droughts and fires and live somewhere a little more stable. Um, But the beavers are moving with us. So we got to keep figuring out how to live with them.
1: That's fascinating. I really want to see a fossil Fossil beaver pond. I I was literally like,
2: (laughs) my brain was like, tell me what (laughs) (laughs) this." You can uh, dig up their dams. So their dams can get buried in sediment and like have a fossil beaver dam. And they've radiocarbon dated sticks from these, um, like in the Sierra Nevada mountains back uh, a couple thousand years. But then the ponds that are up, um, the fossil ponds up on like Ellesmere Island. uh, I think it's Ellesmere Island. Way north in um, Canada. Area and it's whole like peat bogs that are preserved. And they became famous because they're full of fossils, like tons and tons of fossils. And then they realized there are all these fossils in this peat bog because it was a beaver pond. Because um, they find like these beaver chewed sticks and beaver dam remnants there. And they're like, oh, this was just like a nice big bog up here and a beaver made it. And so I could find some of the papers and send them along to you guys based on your faces. You'd enjoy them. Um, it's pretty cool. If you just look up fossil beaver dams, you can find lots of interesting examples.
0: and what's the oldest word fossil beaver dam (laughs) what's the oldest one they found
2: i'm not sure the oldest fossil dam that's intact um i know that there was one that was like i want to say it was like hundred thousand years old that was found um that was pretty intact beaver dam and it was clear that was like constructed by a beaver there's fossil beaver chewed sticks that are much older than that Um, And enough of those together in a wetland setting uh, has been interpreted as signs of a beaver dam that has just decomposed.
1: Do you know, it's really interesting, that one that you said was 100,000 years old that was really well intact. I wonder what made them move.
2: They fill up with sediment. So just like they slow down the water a lot, that lets sediment fall out of the water column and out of suspension. So they aggrade. They build up dirt really fast. And if they build up dirt faster than the beavers can dig it out, it becomes a meadow. And then the stream will route on top of it. And then the beavers build a new dam on top of that stream. And so there's this really cool study out of the Rocky mountains where they use ground penetrating radar and found like this honeycomb structure of old beaver dams where like with depth. So they kept like the beavers would dam up a stream, it would fill in, and then they build a new dam on top of that new meadow and then it'd fill in. And then over and over and over again, you just get this huge, like sponge of beaver pond dirt that has accumulated and made this big flat meadow and they're called beaver meadows. That's amazing. I'm like, okay, we're gonna need another podcast.
0: For... <laughs> this is why I love doing this podcast because Fuck. we learn so, so many much. things. Oh like we would never have known that before. Or, but, 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 but we could have got a, a, a beaver, whole a beaver that. meadow, meadow. Mm-hmm. beaver meadow, and a yep.
1: fossil beaver dam.
0: I want to see the honeycomb structure now. That sounds amazing. It's super cool. Really cool paper.
1: What journal do you read out of the most? What would your journal be?
0: um
2: i read a lot of papers out of eco hydrology right. um wetlands ecological applications a lot of these journals that are like kind of on the fringe of ecology water and geomorphology uh, or geology tend to be where you find beavers because they affect all those really dramatically i see this i'm having this moment again at the end
0: of a podcast where i'm like i need to go and study something new now me too <laughs> me too and i am now a new massive fan of beavers They're i so just cool
1: beaver meadows oh
2: my god i need to see if we have any in the uk i mean you've gotta they might have been tilled and messed up a little bit but they have to have been there you had plenty of beavers before that's insane
0: we'll get in touch with
2: the beaver trust and sophie
0: and we'll see if she can. like vaguely
1: remember this story about a farmer in somerset in a drought just a couple of summers ago and he was the only one that had water for his
0: farm Mm -hmm. am i right there gemma is that right I, I remember that i don't know if that was this summer or a previous yeah, but, summer but, but i very remember that very well. recent summer it's recent yeah and it's because there was beavers there that they um were able to they had water supplied to their yeah their farm yeah That's i so remember sweet. seeing that as well so let's move on to
1: the get to know me round
0: with dr emily fairfax <laughs> so these are a, a variety of questions some of them are a little bit related to weather and some of them i've totally random so the one we always start with is what's your favorite season
2: Ooh, my favorite season is probably summer because i really like thunderstorms and that's the only time i get them predictably the as well good,
1: yeah. yeah predictably as well mm-hmm. not unlike the uk where you're like come on, <laughs> come on. give us
0: Please. one you yeah. always bypass me i'm like
1: I can see it in the distance. I know. <laughs> or I happen to be out of the country and they've had like the best thunderstorms of the years.
0: Jammy Dodgers or Jaffa cakes.
2: I don't even know what those are. Is oh, that- oh. <laughs> be I think. I did
0: think. <laughs> um, I did think
1: I was like, we should be comparing an Oreo and oh, what is the other one? What's the other I one? I don't know any other
0: ones. Oh, j- see. Well, we can. can- so jammy dodgers are like biscuits with jam in the middle it's two biscuits sandwiched together with jam in the middle and then the Uh other one is but it's hard hard. it's hard yeah it's quite hard um and then the jaffa cake is like a sponge that's got like an orange jelly on it and it's covered in dark chocolate ah jam we're gonna have to come up with some american cookies
2: (laughs) i'd probably do the jam one i really like jam
0: they are they are good
1: Either one of those choices would be. Let's we'll see we've been some. We'll send
2: some over to you. <laughs> yeah. and I'll have to call back and be like, wait, guys, I changed my mind. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Don't worry. We'll get it on the next podcast where we're talking about the Beaver
2: A
0: correction. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Sunset or sunrise? uh Sunrise. Why, is that? Isn't Why is that? Why is that?
2: Um, I think sunrises are more special because you get to experience it and it puts you in this great mood and then your day starts and you can take that going forwards. So I like them Earl
1: after my own heart, exactly why I love them as well. I'm like, right. I this beautiful start to the morning, the whole, whole day of hope ahead of me. Mm-hmm. If you
0: were a fruit or vegetable, what would you be? Hmm.
2: I would probably be a tomato because I really like them and they grow in the summer and i have lots of good memories of them from childhood especially of growing too many of them then having to like waddle around my neighborhood with a paper bag full of them and go to the neighbor's house and be like do you want tomatoes um and it was like a social vehicle as a child so it'd be cool to be a tomato and get to go see everybody when i've been overgrown that's
1: (laughs) wow! that's so sweet that's That's a great answer and it was so
0: decisive as well you were right in there
1: yeah I, this is what amazes me. People just seem to have an answer for these things.
2: <laughs> <That's> <laughs> it's obviously incredible. I think about all the time. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. If you could invite anyone to dinner, they can be anybody at all from any historical time frame, they can be a fictional character, who would you invite? Mm. I would probably invite Gandalf
2: from lord of the rings amazing because he seems to be quite wise and also everywhere and connected to everyone and so if you like buy into the model that if you share knowledge with one person and they have a big network that knowledge will share even further like imagine if i was sitting with gandalf and talking to him about beavers he talks to so many people in the lord of the rings trilogy like that knowledge would spread way further than i could do on my own that's
1: a really good answer it's always made me think about becoming an avatar
2: same thing. I'm just talking <laughs> to the <this> system.
1: I'd <laughs> be like, spread my knowledge <laughs> totally, <laughs> and then we would know what a to Kate, and a, we wouldn't have
0: any. We I wouldn't would have, have, have any known.
1: international biscuit problems.
0: <laughs> I've got another one that I've just thought of. Actually, if you had to choose between a trip to the beach or a trip to the mountains, which would you choose? Mountains oh, in a
2: heartbeat. I love the mountains and I love rivers and streams and beaches are cool. And I find them very interesting. Uh, but I, some of my most like formative experiences in nature were in the mountains. And so they're more special to me. Which mountains
1: yeah. are, do you have a mountain you grew up near or.
2: Um I didn't grow up near any mountains. I grew up in the Midwest, which is like flat corn land. But uh, the mountains that were the most influential were the Rocky Mountains because I did my PhD right at the foothills of them. And so I'd like see them every day. And that's where I'd go to study beavers. And that's where I launched my career. And I just really enjoy them.
0: And our final question that we like to ask people is one thing that you wish everybody knew about beavers. I wish that everybody
2: knew that they don't eat fish. It is just a lingering myth about them. I blame *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe* for that, because they have that scene where the beaver family serves up the fish, and it's kind of goofy because, like, they also use a sewing machine and all these other stuff. But people like really latch on to the idea that a beaver would eat fish. And when I ask people who think that they eat fish, like, why do you think that? So many of them say, "Well, in *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, but they serve up this big platter of fish. It makes sense." And I'm like, "Oh my gosh." He didn't know, but he has spread the most misinformation about beavers ever. So I wish everybody just knew that's fake. They don't. They eat plants and their own poop. <laughs> we have yeah. we, my, my bullet points from tonight.
1: Continue. I love it. Fossil beavers. Uh, beavers don't eat fish and they do throw poo. <laughs> they eat
2: their They, poop.
0: Eat, their own they eat their poo. Well,
2: they eat their poo four fantastic takeout points but just once they're (laughs) not gross they're not going to keep going they just eat it once and then it's done like is there a reason for that they eat really woody diets and so they can't get all the nutrients out all the way the first time through sometimes they're just eating like lettuce and stuff that's really herby they don't need to eat that twice they'll just eat that once but if they're Um, eating a high wood diet they'll go through twice
1: clever okay emily so at the end of every episode we like to leave everybody with a little weather wisdom, so a little take-home message. Now, you mentioned earlier in the podcast about how many beavers were around before they started getting hunted and pushed out of their own population, which was somewhere between was it 7 million and some giant number like 40 million. Is that about right? It used to be 100 to 400 million. 100 to 400 million. So... If we had that amount of beavers now, how much water would we have?
2: If we had a historic amount of beavers in North America today, that would mean there is roughly seven Lake Tahoes worth of water stored across all of their ponds. Just scaling up from the average beaver pond size, blow it up to like 200 million beavers, that's seven Lake Tahoes of water.
1: That is an incredible resource that is no longer available but could be in the future but it could be yes it could be in the future wow that's actually pretty shocking which is i it? you know i'm sure that then scaled over here or wherever i mean mm-hmm. and also you know so- around the world yeah like north and south america are connected so god knows what that would mean for the whole of the continents
2: mm-hmm. yeah i mean just shifting taking away that much wetlands definitely affects how weather even forms over north america like it's a major shift in where the moisture is located unbelievable gosh hey
1: we've
0: got another Jammer leaving another podcast just like wide i know know. know. emily this has been such an awesome chat thank you so much we have had the best time thank you so much for chatting to us today so much for chatting to us today we've had an
1: amazing time and have learned so much yet again and we do hope you can come back on the podcast sometime because there's been so many little nuggets in there that we're like, right, we well, we must have another one with you and we can like dig a little deeper and learn a bit more and also see what's happening with the beaver community over the yeah. next couple of months.
2: Absolutely. And I will do my best to learn more about British cookies before the next one. <laughs> we will send you we will send
1: you some and hope they don't get caught up in customs. But we will definitely send you some.
2: And I can answer everything from like a place of knowledge. <laughs>
0: You might have that's them so, both and be like, oh, I don't like either of them. Right? Oh, they're nasty. <laughs> <laughs> be like, no, that's it. We can't have any more conversation. Break our hearts. Break our
2: <laughs> Oh man. I'm sure they're fine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, honestly, thank you so much for joining us. It's been
0: an absolute pleasure today. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. If people want to go and check you out on social media, where can they find you? Uh, My Twitter is the best place. It's just
2: at Emily Fairfax. And then um, I do have a website that's just my professional website and it's
0: emilyfairfaxscience.com. Brilliant. And I can confirm that Emily's Twitter is awesome. So you should definitely go and check that out. If you've listened to this episode and you've enjoyed it as much as we have, we would love it if you subscribe, rate and review the podcast and share it with anyone that you think that might want to have a little listen. You can find us on Instagram we are for the love of weather. On Twitter we are the number four love of weather. And as always we hope that you leave this episode loving the weather and beavers just a little bit more. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye.